Everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. Find hidden clues and uncover a murder mystery. Solve mind-teasing mysteries of the Roaring Twenties. Engage your sense of observation to find hidden clues. Search for hidden objects from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris and uncover a collection of dazzling hidden object spectacles for you to solve. We're all here because we love true crime, right? Well, this game has the perfect twists and turns to keep your brain asking, what happened here? There's nothing I love more than getting to decorate my very own luxurious state island. The best part? You can chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Amara, and this is Black Girl Gone, a true crime podcast. On this episode of Black Girl Gone, we tell the stories of two women who were murdered in 2021. In October 2021, 19-year-old Mia Mercano went missing in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. The day she vanished, she was supposed to fly home to visit her family, but Mia never made her flight. A week later, her body was found in a wooded area. Jessica Edwards was a young mother living in Windsor, Connecticut when she went missing the day after Mother's Day in May 2021. Jessica's family immediately suspected her husband, whom Jessica had been planning to divorce. Two weeks later, her body was found. Both Mia and Jessica had their lives taken in brutal ways. And although their families know who killed them, their stories are reminders of the ever-present danger that women face, the seen and the unseen. This is Mia and Jessica's story. The two stories that I will be sharing with you this week are Patreon mini episodes that I recorded last year. Now, if you've been listening to the show from the beginning or at least since last year, then you may have noticed that we have put out an episode every week for the past 67 weeks, no breaks. But Full transparency, this week, I kind of needed a break. So instead of not releasing an episode at all, I decided to release these two mini episodes as one. And so as you listen, keep in mind that these episodes were recorded last year. And so there may have been more information released about these cases since these episodes were recorded that's not included. It's also why I refer to these cases as being new in the beginning of the stories. Nonetheless, the point of telling these stories remains the same, because both of these women deserved so much more. And while Mia's family will never really get true justice, Jessica's family is just beginning their journey for justice. Mia Mercano was born April 26, 2002, in Pembroke Pines, Florida. Mia grew up in a tight-knit family, when Mia was in elementary school, her family moved from Florida to the British Virgin Islands. 
There, Mia attended elementary school, where they call what they call primary school in the islands. Now, the family lived there for a few years, but eventually they moved back to Florida. Mia attended middle school and then went to Flanagan High School. Now, Mia's senior year was interrupted by COVID-19. And like so many high school seniors in 2020, I'm sure they never could imagine that their high school experience would end in the midst of a deadly global pandemic. But Mia persevered, and she graduated in 2020. Mia had dreams of going to college, and her dreams came true when she was accepted to her first choice, which was the University of Central Florida. Now, Mia, after a few semesters, however, transferred to Valencia College, and there she majored in sports medicine. Everyone who knew Mia said the same thing about her. She was loving and she was caring. She loved everything from horseback riding to modeling. She participated in local shows in the Afro-Caribbean soca music scene, and she participated in pageants, which she won many of. Mia also loved to travel, and in her short time here on Earth, she had been able to see a lot. All around, Mia was a happy young woman whose life was just getting started. In September of this year, Mia was working and attending classes at Valencia College. She had been living at the Arden Villas, which also happened to be where Mia worked, and she worked in their leasing office. Now, on Friday, September 24th, 2021, Mia was working in the office at the Arden Villas, and she was planning to go home to Fort Lauderdale to visit her parents for the weekend. And she had already purchased her plane ticket, and she was scheduled to fly out that night. Now, Mia left work that evening around 5 p.m., but no one ever saw Mia again. Now, Mia was supposed to fly to Fort Lauderdale that night, and so her family was starting to call her in preparation for her arrival. But they were calling her phone and getting no response. And that's when they decided that they should call the police and report that Mia may be missing. Now, about 20 minutes after 9 p.m., Mia's mom called the Orange County Sheriff, and she tells them that she's unable to get in contact with her daughter. Now, in this case, police almost immediately take the report. Now, they tell, you know, she tells her, tells the police that Mia was supposed to, you know, catch a flight that night at 1030. And so the police decide that they should probably just go over to her apartment to check on her. You know, maybe she is still planning to catch her flight and, you know, possibly having issues with her phone. But when police arrive at the Arden Villa apartments, there's no sign of Mia. And when 10.30 comes and goes and Mia doesn't show up for her flight, her family knows that something is very, very wrong. Now, at 1.30 a.m. on Saturday, September 25th, police officially declared Mia a missing person. Mia's family immediately headed to the apartment building where she lived because they knew that Mia had not just left on her own. Now, once her family arrived, police were able to enter Mia's apartment and search around, but it was clear that something terrible had happened inside the apartment. There were obvious signs of a struggle, and police believed almost immediately that Mia was possibly in danger. But her family knew that she was having problems with one of the maintenance workers, and so they were suspicious that he might have something to do with Mia missing. Now, the worker's name was Armando Caballera, and he was a maintenance man at the Arden Villas and had apparently been harassing Mia for some time, you know, asking her out, making sexual advances. It had become more than just a crush. He was making Mia feel really uncomfortable, 
I mean, so much so that she had told her parents about him. So in the early morning hours of September 25th, just hours after Mia was last seen, her family shows up at the apartment building to confront Caviera. And one of her family members actually recorded the interaction on her cell phone. Now, the video starts with Caballera standing with an Orange County police officer. And the first part of the video is very low, so you can't hear what he's saying to the officer. But you can hear when one of Mia's family members starts to confront him. There's evidence of, of obsession. Oh, so you're fascinated with it's Mia. It's not only from my side, so don't try to make this... No, one, no one's saying that. It takes, she's so not here to defend herself right now, so she's missing. So we're talking to and you I, who've been going back and forth that. on the right, That so is your family. But until we figure out what's going on, just don't beat me up. Nobody's beating you up. I'm guilty, why you, would you I put yourself here? in the middle right here. You brought yourself over here. Because we're concerned. You're concerned. Why weren't you concerned hours ago? I just found out. All right, cool, no problem. So in the first so few how did, hours, how did Tati find out? we didn't think it was serious. I don't even know how Tati found oh, out. Somebody's missing me. and you don't think it's serious? Someone maybe that. they're hanging out. Or they got this place right here. They go downtown. I don't know. Maybe her phone's off. I don't know where she... She would use somebody's phone and call her dad or her grandmother, somebody. She, would she was supposed to show up for a flight and didn't show up. So after the confrontation, Mia's family started watching Caballero. They knew that he was lying, but they were hoping that Mia was still alive and that he would lead them to her. At some point, a member of Mia's family observed Caballero with a glove, a backpack, and a pink blanket. And Mia's family member immediately called the police to tell them that it appeared that he was moving evidence or, you know, getting rid of evidence. And so a little before 10 a.m. that morning, the police arrived at the apartment where Caballero lived. Now, they also met Mia's family there. And Caballero had given her family permission to look around the apartment. And so police basically kind of just stood by why the family entered the apartment and looked around. Now, it's not clear what, if anything, was found inside the apartment. But at around 3 p.m., Caballero left his apartment and then he, too, disappeared. Detectives at this point were starting to believe that Caballero had something to do with Mia's disappearance. Now, they had begun investigating what happened the day that Mia went missing. Detectives soon discovered that on the day that she went missing, someone unlocked the deadbolt to her apartment using a universal key fob that was known to be carried by Caballero. At 4.30 p.m., right before Mia left work, someone entered her apartment using a universal key fob. Again, the key fob was known to be in the possession of Caballero. Then, just before 6 p.m., Caballero leaves the Arden Villas. And at 7 p.m., Caballero calls in a fake maintenance call and then returns back to the villas. Police said he then called the front desk and asked to be let into the gate. And they say he did this to establish an alibi. Five minutes after Caballero came back to the apartment complex where Mia worked and lived, someone used her key fob to unlock her apartment door, but no one entered the apartment. So once police received the information about the activity from the key fob that, you know, is known to be in Caballero's possession, they issued a warrant for his arrest. But by the time they did, Caballero had fled. Police now had to search for Mia and their prime suspect. But it would only take them a day to find Caballero. 
By 3 p.m. on Monday, September 27th, Armando Caballero was found dead. He had hung himself inside the garage in a different apartment. Now, it's not exactly clear what his connection was to this property, but the primary suspect in Mia's disappearance was now dead, and her family was angry. They knew that Caballero's, you know, death meant that their chances of finding Mia alive had dramatically decreased. But it also all but confirmed that Caballero was responsible for what happened to Mia. After the discovery of Caballero's body, the search for Mia starts to intensify. Her family participated in the searches, and they turned to the local media for help in finding Mia. Police focused their search around the Arden Villa apartments and the wooded areas nearby. They also searched the area around the apartment complex where Caballero's body had been found. Now, while the search continued, police had also pulled cell phone records for both Caballero and Mia. And they found out that Caballero's cell phone had pinged off a tower near another apartment building hours after Mia was last seen. The apartment building was apparently somewhere that Caballero had lived a few years before. And so once police learned about the cell phone data, they immediately began to search that area around that apartment complex. On Saturday, October 2nd, a little over a week after Mia went missing, police found her body in the wooded area near the apartment building where Caballero's phone had pinged. Mia had been bound with duct tape around her hands and feet, and her mouth had been covered with duct tape as well. The cause of death has not been released yet, but the manor is clearly homicide. Mia's family was absolutely devastated. They were praying to find Mia alive, and now all their hopes were gone, and the person responsible won't even face justice. Mia's family believed that police should have done more when they spoke to Caballero. They believed that if he had been taken into custody the night of the cell phone footage, then he would still be here to answer for what he did. Mia's family also, however, blames Arden Villas for their security flaws. If Caballero had not had access to Mia's apartment, she might still be alive. I mean, imagine being harassed by someone and then them having access to your apartment anytime they want using a key fob. That's absolutely terrifying. Mia's family has filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Arden Villas. They believe that the negligence on behalf of the complex created an unsafe situation for their daughter, and had they had better protocols in place, she might still be alive. Mia's death was preventable. She didn't have to die at the hands of a maintenance man who was harassing her. He should have not had access to her apartment. He couldn't handle that she wasn't interested in him. He couldn't take no for an answer. And so instead, he took her life. And then like the coward he was, he took his own life. I pray that Mia's family finds peace. I hope that they can heal in some way. And I hope that Mia Mercano is resting peacefully. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. Honestly, in the past, I never really thought about how important it was to take care of my mind. I mean... How well would you take care of your car if you had to keep the same one your entire life? That's how our brain works, so why don't we treat them that way? How we care for our minds affects how we experience life, so it's important to invest time and care into keeping them healthy. There are plenty of ways to support a healthy brain, like 
learning a new language, or taking power naps. There's also BetterHelp Online Therapy. I think therapy is such a useful tool that everyone can benefit from, no matter who you are. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat online therapy sessions. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash girlgone. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com slash girlgone. The story about the murder of 30-year-old Jessica Edwards Hutchinson is a very new case, and so there are limited details about Jessica that are available publicly. And although the murder in the story has been charged with her death, her family's fight for justice has only just begun. At the start of this year, Jessica was living in Windsor, Connecticut, and Jessica was living with her then seven-month-old son. She was also finishing up her degree in respiratory care from Manchester Community College. But Jessica was not originally from Connecticut. She was actually born in Jamaica. Now, Jessica's sister, Yanique, said that her sister was her everything. She described her sister as a beautiful, wonderful human being. Now, Jessica was the life of the party, her sister said. She was funny, and Jessica wanted to make sure everyone had a smile on their face. But she was also a mom, and she loved being a mom. She had always wanted to be a mom, and so when she had her son, she was just, like, beyond excited. Now, the father of her son was her husband, Todd Hutchinson. Again, not much information available about him, but he was 22 years old, so he was seven years younger than Jessica. Now, on May 9th, 2021, which was Mother's Day, was the last time that Jessica's family would see her alive. Now, she left her home that evening around 8.15 to pick up her son from her mother's house in East Hartford, Connecticut. Now, when Jessica got to her mom's house that night, she reportedly told her sister that her and her husband had been, like, arguing all day long. She didn't necessarily... It's not clear whether or not she said to her sister what they were arguing about, but she told her sister that they had been arguing all day. Now, Jessica left her mom's house, and she got back to her house around 11.30 p.m. that night. Now, according to reports, Todd said that he was asleep when Jessica came home, but that she woke him up so that they could continue arguing. Now, the next morning, according to Todd, she said that the couple woke up and their argument continued. Now, Jessica and her sister, like I said, are very, very close. And so the next day, when she started to try to call Jessica, um, she wasn't answering the phone. And so Yannick decided that she was just going to go over to Jessica's house to see, you know, if she was there and see what was going on. But at 10.46 a.m. on Monday, May 10th, a very worried Yannick called 911. And she tells the 911 dispatcher that she had gone over to look for her sister, but she wasn't there. Now, Yannick said that when she asked Taj, her husband, about her sister's whereabouts, that he got in his Jeep and sped off. Now, Jessica's family was convinced from the beginning that something was wrong and that they thought that Taj had something to do with it. Now, when police arrived at Jessica's apartment, Yannick told them that, you know, she thought that her sister was possibly, or her sister's body was possibly in the Jeep. 
And so police entered, entered the apartment and they did a preliminary search to look for any signs of Jessica or any signs of a struggle, but neither were present. Now, later on that night, at about 11.15 p.m., Taj walks into the East Hartford Police Department to report that his wife is missing. But when Taj walked into the police station, he was barefoot. Now, police take the report, and they sent canines to the area where the couple lived. Yannick ended up handing over divorce papers that she had found when she was at the apartment the day before. But there's nothing immediate about the apartment or anything immediately around the apartment that is showing any signs of Jessica or any signs that anything has happened to her. Now, on May 11th, two days after Jessica was last seen, police again received a call from Yannick. And a little bit before 8 a.m., Yannick called 911 to report that she was back at her sister's house and that she had observed Taj walking back from the dumpster and that he was acting suspiciously. She also told police that she saw scratches on his face. Now, apparently, he had been wearing a mask when he had come into the station the night before, so the police never noticed that he had scratches on his face. So, once again, police come out to where Jessica and Taj lived, and they bring the canine, and they search the area, including the dumpsters. Now, while the police searched the property in and around where Jessica lived, Jessica's family went to Manchester, where Taj's parents lived, to tell them that Jessica was missing because they believed that Taj had something to do with it. But this was news to Taj's parents because apparently he had not told them that his wife was missing. So back at the apartment, police took some of Jessica's personal items to test for DNA and also to give to the scent dogs that they could use while tracking her movements. Now, Taj agreed to stay at his parents' house while the police investigated, and he also consented to the police searching the house. Now, on May 13th, Taj once again sat down for an interview with police. During that interview, Taj agreed to allow the dogs inside the couple's homes to search for Jessica's phone, and he also said that police could search the couple's three cars. But when police searched the Jeep that Taj had been driving, they found what they described as a blood-like substance. They also found Jessica's license and debit card in the middle console of the Jeep. Now, the next day is May 14, 2021, and police obtained a warrant to search all of the couple's cars, their condo, and Taj's cell phone. Now, cadaver dogs that searched the vehicle couldn't pick up anything, and while searching the home, they did find a pillowcase with blood on it, but they weren't picking up anything. Now, six days later, on May 20th, 2021, police received the cell phone records for Taj on the day after Jessica went missing. And right before he came into the police station barefoot, his cell phone pinged near a wooded area. Now, this information gave police another place to search for Jessica. Police began searching that night, and they ended up having to call off the search when the, when the sun <clears throat> went down, and decided to pick up the search the next day. And so the next day, they resumed their, they resumed their search. They started around 8.30 a.m., and not long after they started their search, they found a body matching Jessica's description. The medical examiner was quickly able to identify the body as Jessica. 
Now, when police went to Taj's parents' home to speak with him, he spoke to the police for hours, and then he finally confessed to killing his wife. Taj told police that on May 9th, the argument that had actually started on Saturday the 8th turned physical. He said Jessica was throwing things at him, and then he told the police that he pushed Jessica that night and that she hit her head and had blood coming out of her ears. He said the next morning when they woke up, they started to argue again, and again, things got physical. Todd told police that Jessica allegedly hit him in the head with a laptop and then pulled a knife on him. And in an attempt to stop Jessica, he allegedly wrestled with Jessica to get the knife, eventually pinning her down to the floor and kneeling on her neck until she stopped moving. He claimed he didn't know that she was dead right away, but once he realized that she was dead, he left her body in the apartment while he took care of their son and ignored calls from her family. At 1027, surveillance shows him pulling his Jeep up to the entrance of the condo, and police believe that that is when he moved the body out of their house. At 10.57 a.m., cell phone records show him near the area where Jessica's body was found. When Todd showed up at the police station with no shoes on, he told police it was because his shoes got muddy when he dumped Jessica's body. Todd told police that the argument had started when he bought his wife two guinea pigs for Mother's Day, which she was apparently not happy with. But her family and police don't believe that at all. They believe that Jessica was planning to divorce Todd. She had, you know, already had the paperwork. She just had not signed it yet. Todd was arrested, and he was charged with manslaughter. He is currently being held in jail awaiting trial. Now, from the start, Jessica's family knew that Todd had something to do with what happened to her. And even though they are happy that he's been arrested, they want the charges upgraded to first-degree murder. They do not believe that this was a heat-of-passion murder. Domestic violence is a real and tragic thing that affects so many women that look like me. It's hard to hear about women being brutally murdered by men who they loved and trusted, men who fathered their children, but... All we can do is continue to bring awareness to these stories and pray that every woman who was a victim of domestic violence finds a way to get safely away from their abusers. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.